Um, so as I mentioned a few weeks ago, prior, I think just prior to Steve and Catherine leaving on renewal leave, I asked you all for some questions that you have of faith, and there was no limitations to what you could ask, and you came up with several questions, I think seven in all. And last time we did a Q&A session, I was able to answer three of them. Um, and so today I've brought the other three questions, so I guess there were six. That's how we do math. Um, and this is why I'm a pastor, where the math in the church says that we believe in one God and three persons, and three somehow equals one, and it's this holy mystery that we all love so much. So... Um, so we're going to run with that, um, and, and so I've brought those three questions for us to look at today, and I want to spend about five minutes on each question so that we have time for your questions, um, and I will make the caveat that none of these are complete answers, um, and I am working on my understanding of faith right alongside you. So these are how I have come to understand these questions based on what I have learned through the Holy Spirit, through my own searching and reading and understanding. And I offer them to you as, um, as a tool or as a way for you to then go back in prayer and reading to then develop your own answers. So am I really giving you answers tonight? I don't know. We'll find out. So the first question that I bring to us this evening, um, actually before we do that, I pulled up scripture because I think reading scripture is always a good way to begin. And uh, many of you know that I'm very fond of the Old Testament and particularly the book of Isaiah. And my favorite part of Isaiah uh, is tattooed on my foot. It's um, Isaiah 6-8, but that is not what I'm reading tonight. It's actually the end of, towards the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Um, and I would love to read the first four verses. Uh, you might recognize these words because they are written on the scroll that Jesus pulls out in the temple when he makes his first proclamation. Uh, but this is where it comes from. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has set me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of right righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display God's glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. My friends, this is the word of God given to us as the children of God. And we say, thanks be to God. You can ask me why that is one of my favorite passages right now, later. 
after I get through the few questions that I prepared. So the first question is, why did none of the disciples witness the crucifixion? And so before I give my answer, I want to share with you all the beauty of the Gospels. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these different Gospels gives stories from a different perspective of Jesus's life, his birth, all the way through his ascension. Uh, And they are not all the same. They do not recount all of the same stories. And in fact, the most glorious part is when each of the Gospels share the same story, but do it differently. So as I answer this question, I remind you all that each Gospel is of a different perspective. A different person wrote their memories down, recounted stories from their own place. So I went back in prepping for this question. I went back through all four of the Gospels, particularly around Christ's crucifixion, all the way from the Lord's Supper moment um, on Thursday, what we call Monday Thursday, all the way through Christ's death and placement in the tomb. And so in Luke chapter 23, verse 49, at around the time that Jesus was being Um, tortured and uh, brought to uh, trial, if you will, this is what it says about where the disciples might have been. It says, but all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So, um, and then if we move to John, chapter 19, verses 26, John says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And so there are only two mentions in two of the gospels of where disciples might have been. And that raises a question for me. We, as the readers, during the moment of Christ's crucifixion, don't exactly know where all of the disciples were. So that gives us an opportunity to wonder, to turn to wonder, where do you think the disciples might have been? If you saw your beloved teacher be arrested and subsequently beaten, and crucified, would you be a little scared? Would you be a little, I mean, not a little, I think I would be a lot scared. And if it were me, I might have found a really nice hole to hide in. Uh, And so for me, the question isn't necessarily why weren't they close by, because I could imagine where they might have been But what was so important about these other aspects of the story of Christ's crucifixion that they found a place in the biblical narrative, that it wasn't so much about where the disciples were, but what was happening in that moment that the persons writing the Gospels chose to recount these particular details. 
And that, for me, is the question. How do these particular stories develop an over, the overarching narrative that needed to be written instead? So <clears throat> this isn't really a, an answer, because my answer is I don't know where they were. I don't know why they weren't right there at the crucifixion, or maybe they were in the crowd. The truth is we don't know, and we are invited into the space of the unknown and allow the Spirit to meet us there and to ponder alongside us. It's the beauty of Scripture as, and the relationship that we have with God through the power of the Holy Spirit when we come to Scripture with questions. Uh, any thoughts on that? Or does that satisfy? All right. I think we made it in five minutes. Yes. The second question uh, is, throughout biblical history, the Israelites talked, prayed, and preached the coming of the Messiah. But when God kept his promise and sent Jesus with a lot of fanfare, they would not believe and kill him. I know this had to happen to have our sins forgiven, but why are Jewish people today denying and not following? This is a question that is near and dear to my heart a little bit because most of you know that my dad is Jewish, that I grew up in a multi-faith household. And so this question is one that I have lived with and pondered. And I think, for me, um, it goes back to the basic understanding of who the Jewish tradition believed their Messiah was going to be. Uh, they believed and still believe to this day that their Messiah is uh, a warrior, someone of political might that would restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory under um, King David. They were looking for a leader like Moses uh, and like David, someone who was pretty quick with a sword, and that wasn't Jesus. In fact, Jesus, his message would often take uh, the, way, the lived practice of Jewish law and offer up a more a deeper, more rich experience of what the law was trying to lead the Jewish tradition into. And that scared the Jewish priests. That was not something that they saw as being in line with the Messiah. So now they hold up Jesus as a prophet but do not recognize him as Messiah. They are still waiting for someone of that strong political might. And so that's a um, very brief. If you want more information, I have books and, um, and resources that I have pulled online that I would love to offer you because this is a question that I continue to wrestle with, that I continue to ponder. And this, I'm glad we're not live streaming because this is the unpopular opinion that I believe it's okay. Like, 
my dad is someone who is the kindest, most loving, and gentle man that I have ever met in my entire life. And he doesn't profess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I love him anyway. That doesn't change my love for him. I don't believe that changes God's love for him. And I'm okay with that. That is his, uh, how he has come to know and experience God and this world. I profess something different. And we have a beautiful relationship filled with really interesting conversations. And I love it. So that's my answer for that one. Um, so, and then the final question is sort of based in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45. So I'm going to read those scriptures and then ask the question. Um, if my phone will cooperate. I am not of, like, a, a good millennial in that I, um, I really struggle with all things technology. So I'm glad that that, where, am I? Yes, I'm in the right place. Okay. I should have just brought my regular Bible. I didn't think about it because I was running around with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. All right, here we go. Um, this is Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's probably wise, except asking questions is a good thing. I will, I will die on that hill if I need to. Uh, so the question is, different references to Jesus in so many ways in the Bible exist. Why? Was Jesus really God in human form? Mm, I could spend hours on all of these questions, but this is um, a really great question indeed. So here's my, my answer. If this question refers specifically to Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, I think it might just be misinterpreting what Jesus is saying in this section of scripture. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 22 is talking to the Sadducees specifically about their notions of the Jewish Messiah and who they expected to come. Jesus was challenging one aspect of their current understanding, namely the belief that the Messiah would be David's son. Uh, for me, this passage serves as a challenge by Jesus to disrupt the current notions of Messiah, to make room for belief and acceptance of the true Messiah, one who is indeed God in human form. So, in truth, 
The church, we, the Christian church, believes that Jesus is both divinity and humanity together. Um, none is more, is greater than the other. They are both equal in uh, this idea of a dual nature of Jesus. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Here's another place where Christian math is a little wonky, right? And we call this a holy mystery because this is something that we take on belief. We never will, I don't, I, we will try forever to wrap our minds around how this is possible and still wind up with questions. I think that's okay. And part of what, what faith is, is resting in the questions. That's okay to ask them, it's okay to have them, it's okay not to have the answers. And that's why we have faith, because we can save up those questions, ask them over time, and on the other side of eternity, hopefully get some really good answers, right? But it's a holy mystery in that we can rest in the not knowing. Um, now, we can, there's lots of scholarship on this particular thing about specifically how we come to understand the person of Jesus. There are people who, um, this scholarship is called Christology, Christ, the study of Christ. Um, and almost like a sliding scale, each and every one of us understands Christ or connects with Christ in our own way because each and every one of us has our own personal walk with Christ. Now, on the sliding scale of Christology, someone could have a high Christology, which means that they connect more with Jesus's divinity, the examples in scripture where Jesus is doing divine things like healing the sick and, and raising um, the dead to life and doing these miraculous things. Um, that is a high Christology because that's what draws your attention, that connects you to Christ. And then there are folks like myself who uh, have a lower Christology, still believe that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, but my heart connects better with the stories of Jesus eating with the poor um, and spending time in conversations, answering questions, that the moments in Scripture where Jesus is doing things that I would do, and so I connect more with those stories and find myself there and can connect Christ there, knowing that Christ is absolutely divine and can and will do miraculous things. I just connect better to and have a better understanding of Christ's humanity. And so I would have a low Christology. That was a lot. I did it and quickly. If you have more questions, I also have lots of books. Thank you, seminary. <laughs> yes, I paid for those books. I'm happy to share. Let's use them. Okay, those were my brief, quick answers to those questions. 
Now, I would like to hear, let's see what time. I'm going to take one. I'm going to take one from you all. Here's my phone. Here's what happens when you don't. Oh, we can do it. Five minutes. All right, what you got for me? I can't promise greatness. All right, Dan. Share your thoughts on um, on the practice of fasting. Ha ha ha! I'm terrible at it. It's my first thought. Um, sure. So fasting first is a practice, uh, a spiritual practice that um, really started. Gosh, all the way back. It became popular in the monastic communities where uh, they, the idea is that in, in Paul, in one of Paul's letters, don't ask me where because, again, spur of the moment, um, the self-emptying, this is Philippians, ha! Philippians chapter 2, the self-emptying of Christ on the cross uh, is something that as as sort of this pillar, like having the mind that is in Christ who emptied himself fully, became becoming fully human, uh, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This idea of Christ being so emptied that he was able to then be obedient to the point of death. As a Christian who's trying to uh, emulate Christ, the idea of fasting goes back to this idea that if we empty ourselves completely uh, of our desires, our needs, our wants even, we can fully hear God. And I think, so back in the monastic practices, this was equated with food, right? The, the need for food and hunger, um, there are some people who do that well. I am not one of those people who fasts from food well. However, I have found that emptying myself of things that pull me away from Christ, for example, um, in my younger years, I was really attached to this idea of self-image, like of... Um, wearing lots of makeup and making sure, like, I looked presentable, like, on point all the time. And I realized that that diminished my own idea of self-worth, of who I was to my core. And so for a season of time in college, I decided to not wear makeup, to fast from this idea of perfection. And in doing so, I reclaimed a part of my own idea. I, uh, my own um, self-image that I am beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God just as I am. And that worked for me and brought me closer to Christ. I didn't fast from food because that's, and bless you if you can do that. I'm proud of you. And I could never. And don't ask me to give up coffee. <laughs> ever. <sighs> But there's something to this where you pinpoint a place in your faith journey that you feel actually separates you from Christ. 
that you then offer that back to Christ to say, this is yours. Teach me what you want me to know. Now, I don't have a problem wearing makeup now. I just don't have time, to be honest, running around with two small children. In the morning, I'm lucky to just get up out of bed and dress appropriately enough to like make it to work. But I know who I am. And I know who Christ has made, or God has made me to be in the image of Christ. And I will never not, I'm so thankful for that time in my life where I fasted from that. Boom. Let's see. Yeah, that was good. I feel like this is an encore moment. I'm going to take one more brief one, and then we'll do communion. One more. I'm invigorated now. That was great. You got one? Chase, is... Chase do you have one? No. Okay. One more. Anyone got one? Which, which Mary? Are we talking Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene? I think so. Um, I believe Mary Magdalene was at the cross. Uh, and in fact, again, I have plenty of books on Mary Magdalene because I'm fascinated by her. And uncovering her as a, as a prophet and as an, um, not a prophet, sorry, an apostle, because uh, the way that we have made Mary Magdalene out to be this sort of like purity culture, I think misses the power of her proclamation. Um, so I've done a lot of research on her, and I think she was absolutely everywhere that all of the 12 disciples that we have heard about. Um, and in fact, even in the last uh, story of Pentecost, uh, the disciples we think of being in that house waiting on the Holy Spirit is more than just the 12 disciples. The Jesus or Judas had died. They replaced Judas with another person for 12. But it doesn't specify a number of disciples. I believe Mary Magdalene was present and received the power of the Holy Spirit along with all of the other important disciples um, because she was part of that early church movement. So absolutely, I think Mary was, at least for me, in the way that I read that scripture, that Mary was indeed at the cross uh, and bawling her eyes out and, and probably had to turn away at points that were just too hard for her. And that's, again, the gift of the, the space between the written words on the page where we can ponder and wonder and question and that is scriptural too. That is led by the Holy Spirit. So that's my answer. All right, let's have communion.